So we get into Daniel 12 this morning. And if you're not there yet, go ahead and turn there. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to read through the chapter, and then we're going to make our way through it and just kind of finish out our study through Daniel this morning. Uh, we will spend quite a while on the first couple of verses, so don't get antsy. We'll get to the rest. We'll get it all done, and I promise you we'll be out of here in time for dinner. Daniel chapter 12, <laughs> verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. Remember, he was at the river when he first received this vision back in chapter 10. And the one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. Many will be purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end, and then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Lord, as we finish this uh, prophecy that you gave to your servant Daniel, We ask that we will have a reaction to these words. Not just an emotional or a visceral reaction, Father, but an applicable reaction. That we will be motivated by these words and by the teaching of Your Word and by the prophecy to act and to tell the Gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim Jesus until You come, recognizing that the hour is late. I pray that you will give us insight that we would be among those who shine like the stars in the expanse of the heavens. That we will have the brightness of the glory of Jesus Christ reflecting off of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas Eve, 1944. Somewhere in Europe... The bombs of war echoing in the distance. Two entertainers, a professional named Bob Wallace and a wannabe named Phil Davis, gave an impromptu performance for their buddies of the 151st uh, Division of the U.S. Army. Davis wound up the old music box. Wallace stepped up to sing that unforgettable song, White Christmas. Right, that's the intro, the beginning of the movie White Christmas. My family watches it every year. 
Hannah's not letting us watch it until she gets home on Christmas Day, which really ticks me off. (laughs) White Christmas was released in 1954 to theaters, less than a decade after the Second World War had ended. At that time, there were still some romantic notions about war among people in America, by and large. And yet, you military personnel know better than any of us. War, whether it's justified or not, is never romantic. There's nothing beautiful, nothing precious about war. It's brutal, it's violent, it's bloody. And again, sometimes it is just, other times it is not. But it is not romantic. History has recorded over 14,535 wars since civilization began. The cost in human lives has been estimated to be up over 3.6 billion, half the population of Earth right now. The cost in money would be the equivalent of taking a solid gold belt, 33 feet wide by 33 feet thick, and wrapping it around the equator. I don't know who comes up with these things. (laughs) Someone sat down and said, let's see, how can we explain this? I mean, that's amazing. Since 3600 B.C., there have been a total of 291 years of peace. Let me give you the percentage. That's about 5% of history. Flip it around. 95% of history has involved war and bloodshed. Furthermore, since 32 A.D., we haven't had a single year of peace on earth. Some might say, well, Jesus came to bring peace on earth. And I would say, yes, and we cut him off. When you cut off the Prince of Peace, what you get is war. And that's what we've had for 2,000 years since the death of Christ. And Daniel said as much. The angel told Daniel, write this down. Even to the end, there will be war. After saying Messiah himself will be cut off, Daniel 9.26, even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined... And Jesus had a word for this. He called these wars birth pangs. He said in Matthew 24, verse 6, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. Those things must take place. doesn't say He wants them to take place. He said they must. But that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And it's an interesting concept, birth pangs, because what do birth pangs do? They get worse. Hurt? <laughs> spoken like a woman. You know? <laughs> Truly, spoken like a woman, because a man wouldn't have a clue. You know, Birth pangs, they increase both in intensity and in frequency. So what they do is they signal the coming birth by coming closer together and being more intense, as in World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam, and on we go. The intensity and the frequency of war should tell us as the birth pangs get closer together and more brutal and more violent, it should tell us something about how close the birth is. The Bible tells us also something of the birth to follow, all of these birth pangs. It will be ultimately a time of peace such as the world has never known. Described as a millennial kingdom, a thousand years of peace on earth. Truly the Prince of Peace will come. 
Truly the Prince of Peace will bring the peace that was promised. But the first time around, as I said, we cut Him off. And so we have had no peace. Now as we come to the end of the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, the final prophecies, chapter 10, 11, and 12, ends with what we could call the war to end all wars. The war to end all wars. That's what Woodrow Wilson called World War I. And with all due respect, he was wrong. That was not the final war. The final war is yet to come and is talked about right here in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 11, the first 35 verses, detail for us 135 prophecies historically fulfilled from the time of Daniel, about 530 or so B.C., all the way up to the first century B.C. And what's remarkable is historians have done this. You can go through those 35 verses and literally count out 135 fulfilled prophecies precisely, exactly, amazingly. In the last 10 verses of Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 45, we learn of the rise and fall of the last great world despot, a man the Bible calls Antichrist. He'll be at the center of the final world war when the world finally wakes up and there in the last battle turns all of their fury and anger on Him. Antichrist is going to gather all the nations for this war and yet they will come and turn against Him at that time. The mask is off. He will be seen for what He is and the world is in a massively engaged war. That battle will take place in the middle of Israel in what is today a beautiful, picturesque, expansive valley called... Megiddo, the war of Armageddon. Well, Daniel chapter 12 picks up right there, about halfway in between this time that's called the tribulation. More on that in just a second. Five points here to outline the last chapter of Daniel. And the first point is tribulations. Tribulations, plural. Look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will... Arise. Tribulations. Tribulations. I say that in the plural because while there is only one tribulation, it's divided in half. And Daniel 12 picks up in the middle of the final seven years of this age. The last half of the tribulation, three and a half years. That's where we are right here as Michael stands up. The King James Version reads that at that time, Michael shall stand up. The the New American Standard Version obviously says at that time, Michael will arise. I like stands up. I like the sound of that. Michael stands up. It's as if he's had enough. (laughs) Called to stand up, called to battle, called to arms, Michael stands up. And he will deal with the issue at that time going on in the heavens. Now I want you to understand something about the archangel Michael. He is not Jesus. Jehovah's Witness teaches that Michael is Jesus, that Michael became a man and turned into Jesus. Well, Jesus was not an angel. Jesus is the creator of angels. Jesus is the creator of all things. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And John tells us all things that have been created were created through Him and by Him and for Him. That's Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. Michael is not Jesus. Michael is a created being. Michael the archangel is a great angel. But Michael is probably the closest of any others to the opposite of Satan. 
Now some would say, I thought God was the opposite of Satan. No, no. Satan is a created being. Satan was an anointed cherub in his day. Satan is a fallen angel. But he's a created angel and he is not the opposite of God. He is not to evil what God is to good. The reality is God is absolute perfection, the Almighty, and everything else is just levels of distance from Him. Satan's about as far away from God as you can get, but he is not the opposite, either in terms of power or in terms of anything else. So Michael might be a good kind of opposite of Satan. Both of them angels. Uh, the archangel Michael, the anointed cherub Satan, Ezekiel 28 verse 14, describes him. And it seems fitting to me that these two will go head to head in the end. And when Michael stands up, it'll be time for a heavenly battle that takes place. And not because Michael and Satan are opposites, but because Michael is Israel's guardian angel. The Bible tells us there in verse 1, he's the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. The sons of your people. He's talking to Daniel. Daniel's people is Israel. Michael is the guardian angel of Israel. Satan is the great anti-Semite. So you have the guardian of Israel and the anti-Semite. No wonder this battle takes place. No wonder the two go head to head. And when Michael stands up, Satan gets the boot. Look at verse 1 continuing on. It says, There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Jesus calls that last three and a half years the Great Tribulation. Part of the overall tribulation of seven years, Daniel chapter 9. We already studied that, declares and talks about. The last three and a half years, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, For then there will be a Great Tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. You hear those words? How familiar that is exactly to what we read in Daniel, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Jesus says there will be nothing like this, this great tribulation. He says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Who is the elect? Israel. Israel. A couple of people first hour said the church. It's not the church. The church has left the building. The church is no longer present on planet earth. By the midpoint of the tribulation, the church has been gone three and a half years. Well, Rick, that's your opinion. Well, yeah, and I take the Bible literally to come to that opinion. I'm not saying that I'm right and all others are wrong, but I am saying if you take the Bible literally, that's really the only opinion you can come to. Any other view has to spiritualize or allegorize Scripture to get around it and make it work. If you just take it at face value, the church is out of here before the tribulation starts. And three and a half years in, suddenly there's this war in heaven, this battle that takes place. The great tribulation is the last three and a half years. And if not for the elect, Israel, the time would not have been cut short. Jesus said in Revelation 3, verse 10, because you, speaking to the church, He said, because you have kept the word of My perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, have you known Jesus to be someone who keeps His word? So Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing. Then why would He allow us to experience any of it? Some people take what's called a mid-tribulational view of the rapture of the church. The rapture simply meaning people being caught up to Jesus to meet Him in the clouds. Some say that happens midway. 
You know, you go three and a half years in, the church is going to have to endure for three and a half years. Hey, we have not been destined for wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 Oh, well, the wrath doesn't really begin until the Great Tribulation. Well, that's funny. Tell that to the people on earth during the first half. Because Revelation chapter 6, which describes the first three and a half years, ends with the people saying, save us from the wrath of the Lamb. The first three and a half years are a time of wrath. It just gets worse in the last three and a half years. And I'm here to tell you, I believe Scripture is absolutely clear. The church, followers of Jesus Christ, you will not be here during that time. Israel, at least Israel non-believing, those who have not come to faith in Jesus yet, will be here at that time. Now, as I said, the Bible divides that hour of testing, the last seven years, in half, calling the last three and a half years of the final seven the Great Tribulation. And two things happen right at that midpoint to make it far worse than it had been up until then. Actually, more things happen, but I'll give you two specific right now. Number one, the full wrath of God is finally poured out. First half of the tribulation, you've got the wrath of the Lamb. But you get to that midsection and suddenly God says, now, and He unleashes the full wrath, the full punishment for rejecting Jesus and for sin in the world. And by the way, He's done it once before. I'm not talking about the flood. I'm talking about the cross. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus took on Himself the full wrath of God. All of the punishment for sin necessary once and for all. If you will believe in Jesus, that is the punishment. And He took it for you. That is grace. That's remarkable. That's the love of God in a snapshot, in a picture. And He did that on the cross. But for those who would reject, for those who would say, no, I don't want any part of that, those who are on the earth at the time, the wrath is going to be poured out during those last three and a half years. The full wrath. The prophet Zephaniah said in chapter 1, verse 14, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, of destruction and desolation, of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. The Lord says, I will bring distress on men so they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like the dust and their flesh like the dung. That is serious business. That is horrifying. It's absolutely truth. And it is not for you if you will but believe in Jesus. See, God's given you the out. The Lord doesn't want to pour His wrath out on anybody. And so He says, I'll take it for you. I'll take the stripes on the cross. Believe in Me and your wrath is paid for. For Jesus took the full wrath of God on Himself. But the full wrath is poured out midway through the tribulation. The second thing that happens is the full entourage of Satan is booted out. Now keep your finger in Daniel chapter 12 and go to the parallel passage, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation is not a real hard book to find. So go ahead and turn there, chapter 12. And I want you to keep a finger in Daniel 12 because we're going to do a little bit of back and forth. These two books really ought to be taken, these two chapters, uh, hand in hand. Because the one explains the other and and, uh, specifies some things. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, speaking of the booting out of Satan. This is happening now at the midpoint of the tribulation. uh, Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. 
dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now some say, well, yeah, that happened back like before creation, right? Wrong. Because we know after creation, Satan has continued to have access to heaven. Where is Satan right now? Right now, he has access to heaven. He has authority on the earth. And he has accusation on his lips. Access to heaven, authority on earth, accusation on his lips. He has access to heaven. The book of Job tells us that very clearly. Job chapter 1, verse 6, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. You see, Satan has to go to God to get permission. Satan still has to account for his actions. Satan still comes before the Lord. And he's able to do that and he has access to heaven, even now. How do you know that? Well, the third point, he has access, he has authority on earth, he has accusation on his lips. We'll get to that in a minute. But he's in heaven accusing you right now. It's what he does. Part of the litany of things that Satan, the liar, and the father of all liars, does. But he also has authority on the earth. Three times, we talked about this last week, Jesus called him the prince or the ruler of this world. John 12.31, John 14.30, John 16.11. Very clearly, who's in charge here? Jesus says Satan is. He's the ruler of the world. The ruler of the planet. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he has access to heaven, but he has authority on the earth. Now again, remember, Jesus warned. He said, there will be wars and rumors of wars. These things must take place. But that's not the way He wants it to be. It's just the way it is. And yet there are those still today who want to blame God for all of the the hurt and the heartache and the war and the terror and the death that happens on the planet. If God is a God of love, why does He allow these things? Why do these things take place? And I remind you, The world cut off the Prince of Peace. The world cut off Messiah the Prince. And as a result, or in so doing, we submitted ourselves to the authority of the God of this world. Now someone today might say, well, I wasn't there. (laughs) I never cut Jesus off. You did the first time you willfully sinned. You made that decision. You joined the ranks, and I did too, of everybody who is in that camp who cut off Messiah, when I said, I know the truth, but I don't want to do it. I know what your word tells me, Lord, but I'm I'm going to do my thing. Boom, you have just joined that group. So just by willfully sinning, we cut Jesus off. Others might say, well, I never submitted to no God of this world. The only authority I ever submit to is me, myself, and I. Which is what I call the trinity of idiocy. (laughs) Gang, listen. Every act of rebellion against God is an act of capitulation to the enemy. You don't do one without doing the other. You sin against the Lord, what you're doing is coming under the authority of the devil. You are submitting to his authority. And get this, the same one who lures you into that sin, who demands that you worship him, who wants to be your authority, that is Satan, is the first one to rat you out when you sin. What a hypocrite! 
And yet he's the liar and the father of all lies. And especially if you've already committed your life to Jesus, man, He is trying to rat you out every chance He gets. He not only has access to heaven and authority on the earth, He has accusation on His lips. Look at Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. It says they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. How do you overcome the accusations of Satan? The constant, ongoing, and maybe you hear it. Hey, there's another thought. Maybe as Satan is accusing, you're hearing it in your own ear. And you're going, I'm too guilty. I'm too much of a sinner. I'm such a blow it. I'm such an idiot. God's grace can't possibly be big enough for me. I just over and over, I'm that guy, I'm that woman who who can't keep faith with the Lord. And you know where those words are coming from? The accuser of the brethren. That's Satan talking. Don't listen to him. You listen to Jesus who died for you. And if you have faith in Jesus and you want to overcome these accusations, this constant flow of accusing from the enemy, listen, they overcame Him, verse 11, because of the blood of the Lamb. Jesus died for you. His blood is 100% sufficient to cleanse you of all sin. Hallelujah! There's nothing I can do bad enough that Jesus' blood isn't good enough to cleanse. And because of the word of their testimony. You know what? A great way to avoid the accusation of Satan is to speak the word of God. Just, man, keep the testimony going. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. What does that mean? It means I love Jesus more than I love my own life. You know, take me out if you need to. I'll be with Him. What's the worst anybody could ever do to me? Besides the fact, John tells us in 1 John chapter 12, verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Put it in legal terms. Satan is the prosecutor. Jesus is the defense attorney. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan is disbarred. He's out of there. Well, what happens next? Verse 12 of Revelation chapter 12 tells us, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. He's kicked out of heaven. This war between Michael and Satan happens and their forces, Satan and his forces are not strong enough, booted out of heaven, come down to the earth. They now have no more access in the heavens and now all anger and fury and frustration is focused on planet earth. And that's what Satan's going to be up to during the Great Tribulation. The last three and a half years. That short amount of time. But even with Satan in a state of frenzy... There's good news for Israel. Back in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, Daniel, that would be Israel, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Two things were required at that time for people of Israel to be saved. They need to be the people of Israel and they need to have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. How do you get your name written in the Lamb's book of life? You believe in Jesus. You accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so there will be a remnant of Israel. The Bible implies about a third 
of Jews living on the planet at the time, a remnant of Israel who will be saved during this time because they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 12, verse 13 says, When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. I don't have time to get all into this. Go back and listen to last year's Christmas Eve service. We talked about this. The woman is Israel. And the male child is Jesus. And we covered the first five verses of Revelation 12 in that Christmas teaching, what my daughter called one of the more bizarre Christmas teachings she had ever heard. <laughs> Actually, it was my future son-in-law who said that, and he is still on thin ice. <laughs> so at this time, the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child, Jesus. So the woman, Israel, is protected. The two wings of the great eagle, verse 14, were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for how long? A time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Three and a half years. The last half of the tribulation. Israel protected that remnant of faithful Israel. Where are they protected? Because some would take this and say, well, that's the church. That's got to be the church. Well, the protection here, gang, is on earth and it's in the wilderness. The church, when it is taken out, when it is rapture, meets Jesus in the sky... And so we'll always be with the Lord. Not on earth, not in the wilderness, but with Him in heaven, in the place that He's prepared for us, John chapter 14 tells us. Well, where is this place in the wilderness Israel's protected? You Bible students know, probably a good likelihood, a place called Selah. Isaiah 16 verses 1 through 5 talks about Selah in the wilderness. Selah in the Hebrew means rock, which is the same word as Petra in the Greek. Some of us have actually traveled to Petra and seen the Rose Red City, and it's thought that perhaps, <laughs> you've been there, that perhaps that will be the place that Israel is protected in the last three and a half years. Well, back in Daniel chapter 12, that gets us through verse 1. How are we doing? <laughs> verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. The second point in our outline, resurrections. Resurrections. Scripture talks about, and this is, this is very simple and it's very clear, but it's very confused, uh, especially among believers today. The Scriptures speak of two resurrections and two deaths. And if you can understand this, you'll get what's going on. Two resurrections, two deaths. The first death is simply the physical death. It is the death that is prescribed for all men. It is, it is uh, prescribed for all men to die once and then comes judgment. The book of Hebrews tells us. So death is just what happens. It's, it's the natural result of our sin. Everybody's going to die. That's the deal. Unless, of course, you happen to be alive at the time of the rapture. And you all know, Pastor Rick is holding out. I just need to stay healthy enough to make it to that day. The first death is physical death. The first resurrection is to eternal life through Jesus Christ for all who believe. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has the part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. The first resurrection, gang, is already underway. Who knows who the first person to get it going was? It was Jesus, absolutely. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Jesus is the model of resurrection. 
You want to know what you're going to be like when you are resurrected? What, what your body's going to be like? No, we're not going to be glorified in the way Christ is because Christ is glory. He's glory incarnate. But we, like Jesus, will have glorified bodies. So read the last, the end of the, all four Gospels. Look at Jesus after His resurrection. That's a picture kind of of what we'll be like. We'll be able to move around. We'll be, you know, recognizable. We'll know each other. We can go through walls. I think that's really cool. <laughs> Still eat fish if you like fish, you know. But there's a net, it's full bodily resurrection. That's my point. You know, there's a point in Luke, I believe it is, where Jesus asked for a piece of fish. Can I have a piece of fish? Well, why would he ask for a piece of fish? To prove that he wasn't a ghost. That he had been full bodily resurrected. He said to Thomas in in the book of John, Hey, put your fingers in the nails. Check it out. Touch me. I'm here. This is real. I'm not some phantom floating around out there. But he's glorified. He's in his resurrected state. And so you and I will be through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the model. So he starts it off. The first resurrection began with Jesus and will continue. Listen, it also includes all of those who are born again. That's the dead in Christ and we who are alive when Jesus calls us up. And it could be tomorrow and it could be next week. We don't know. The 1 Thessalonians 4.16-18 through 18, passage we quote a lot talks about that the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive will be caught up to meet them in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. The phrase caught up, it's where we get the word rapture. Very simple. But the first resurrection began with Jesus and then includes all of those who are born again, whether you die or not. If you're born again, you're going to go. You're resurrected. That's promised to you. It also would extend, I believe, into the tribulation for those who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. <laughs> Revelation chapter 7, verses 9-17 through 17, to describe all those who die in that period of distress in the first three and a half years. They're waiting, but they all are also part of the first resurrection. It also would include, and stay with me on this, the first resurrection would include all of those who died in faith prior to the cross. And something that is often misunderstood as well is people look at the cross and they go, what happened to everybody who died before Jesus died? Well, the cross is sufficient to pay for sins both for all of those after Jesus died and also for all of those before Jesus died. Well, how do they get saved? How could they believe in Jesus? Faith in God. As Paul said about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, it was credited to him as righteousness. He got a credit. It wasn't good for anything except to hang on to until Jesus died. When Jesus died, suddenly that credit is the value of Abraham's eternal life. Suddenly now it's been paid for, the credit can be paid. And so all of those people who died in faith, which would primarily be Israel, but also would include any and all ancient believers in God. Adam and Eve. Seth, Enoch, Noah. Aren't they Jews? They didn't come from Abraham. They preceded Abraham. Okay, They were just part of the world. They will all be saved. All of these are part of this wonderful, marvelous first resurrection. But the key here, gang, is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in God to do what He said He would do. That's the key to the first resurrection. And if you die in that faith, or if you are alive in that faith when Jesus comes, you will be resurrected to eternal life and always be with Jesus. 
But this also signals another resurrection. He said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Make no bones about it. Understand the Bible is clear. There is a second resurrection. And the second resurrection is to judgment and sentencing and hell. It's for those who awake to disgrace and everlasting contempt. It includes the rest of the dead of all history who who died relying on their own deeds to be saved. It's the good person principle. This is the one that should really shake us if we believe in this whole good person idea. Well, I'm a good person. I'll just tell God I'm a good person. Nobody's a good person. Even the goodest of the good persons is not a good person. Get it? Got it? (laughs) Good. The good people who say, I don't need, I'm just going to present myself before the Lord. You know, should that happen? If that's all legitimate, and you Christians are right about that, then I'll just present myself before God and say, check me out, I'm pretty good. You know, I I had some problems, I took care of those, I'm good. (laughs) And the Lord will say, okay, then let's judge you by your deeds. The second resurrection is a resurrection. Revelation chapter 20 tells us where the dead, all of the dead throughout history, are resurrected to be judged based on their deeds. And there is only one outcome. Revelation 20 verse 13 says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Let me be clear. Two deaths. There's a physical death and there is the spiritual death. Two resurrections. One to eternal life and the other to the lake of fire. And I'm not making this up. This is what the Bible declares simply and clearly. Gang, every single person who is raised up in the second resurrection to face that judgment will be found wanting and will go to hell. And it's not because anyone wants it to be that way. In fact, God doesn't even want it to be that way. It's why Jesus went to the cross. It's why Jesus took the pain and the sin and the suffering of man on Himself at the cross that if you will believe in Him, your judgment happened. I've said this before. 2,000 years ago was my judgment day. At Calvary on the cross, that was when I faced judgment. Jesus faced it for me and He took on Himself the wrath of God. So it's no longer mine. But if I'd rather stand up and say, look, I'm good, and I want to be judged based on my own merit, God will say, fine, I'll give you your day in court, but when you show up, you're going to be found lacking. Why would God say that? So that it doesn't happen. His love is so great that He has told us all of this. He has made it so perfectly clear so that it doesn't affect anyone. Now, I do need to say this. There are some of you uh, who have family members friends who have died and you don't know if they had faith in Jesus and this is one of the really upsetting things sometimes for people when they think about coming to faith themselves they think I'd love to believe in Jesus but does that mean I'm condemning my sister or, or my friend or my dad does that mean if I believe in him that I'm saying they're going to hell no what it means is that you are handing them into the mercy and grace of God you and I are not smart enough to figure out how all this works So you hand that person over to the Father and you let Father deal with that. I'm not a universalist. I think the Bible is clear. Few will find salvation in Jesus. Now that few is a massive number of people. 
But there will be many people lost. And yet we don't know what happens in the moments of a coma, in the last moments of life, before the final breath. We don't know. We don't know what conversations. We don't know how God is working behind the scenes. And so my encouragement to you is if you've lost a loved one or a friend, and you're like, but, but if they didn't know Jesus, what does that mean? Where are they? It's up to God. And God is perfectly just and absolutely merciful, so you leave it to Him. Amen? So the second resurrection is to judgment and sentencing. Moody, I like what he said. He said, he who is born once, physical birth, and that's your only birth, you're going to die twice. You're going to die the physical death, and you're going to die the spiritual death. But he who is born twice, that is born of the flesh, but also born again, born of the Spirit, he will die once. And I always add, unless you're alive at the time of the rapture. Some will never taste death. Verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Number 3. Illumination. Illumination. Now that verse may have its most specific fulfillment... When, as Revelation 7 tells us, 144,000 Jewish evangelists are set loose on the earth to preach the gospel. They may be the ultimate fulfillment of this, those who have insight, who shine brightly like the brightness in the expanse of the universe. And you can read that and study it. Revelation 7 is fascinating to see that. 144,000 Jewish missionaries in the world, believers in Christ, and gang, that's roughly twice the number of missionaries on the planet today. So God is not holding back, even in the time of tribulation. But what's the real purpose of Bible prophecy? I mean, that's, if, if this is specifically referring to the 144,000, and it may be, what about for us? How can we apply this, this whole idea of insight and shining brightly? I want you to think about this. The real purpose of Bible prophecy. Why do we study Bible prophecy? Why, why here at the Bridge Fellowship have we spent years, literally, in Bible prophecy? Well, A, because we're teaching through the Bible and over a third of the Bible is prophecy, so it's kind of hard to miss. But what's the importance of it? Is it for curiosity's sake? Is it just about intrigue? You know, People come in here on a Wednesday night, we're like, are we studying prophecy tonight? Yes, all right. And so many people excited about the book of Daniel. <laughs> Bible prophecy. Is it for our own you know, spiritual buzz? It's much more. We could call prophecy actionable intelligence. Actionable intelligence. What do you mean? I mean we know what's coming. Bible prophecy is so that we can know what's coming and act on it. February 26, 1993. The first World Trade Center bombing took place. Most people don't even think about that one. Six people were killed. Over a thousand people were injured when a truck bomb went off in the garage under World Trade Center 1. August the 7th, five years later, 1998. Two U.S. East African embassies were bombed. Nairobi, Kenya was bombed. 212 people were killed. 4,000 were injured in that attack. And over in Dar es Salaam, simultaneously there in Tanzania, 11 people were killed, 85 were injured when truck bombs went off at both of those embassies. October 12th, the year 2000, 
The naval vessel USS Cole was attacked by a suicide boat as it harbored in Yemen. 17 U.S. sailors were killed. 39 more were injured. And the name Al-Qaeda began to surface. In fact, the name Al-Qaeda had already surfaced when the East African embassies were bombed, although we weren't paying a whole lot of attention here on the American mainland because it was in Africa. It's over there. So Al-Qaeda, most people hadn't really heard. Al-Qaeda's name came up again when the USS Cole was bombed, but still people hadn't really heard the name Al-Qaeda until the president gave his address after 9-11 and named Al-Qaeda as the culprit in that attack. Let me ask you a question. Did we have a heads up for 9-11? Should we have known it was coming? Now, Right after 9-11, when the shock wore off, of course, the blame game began. People began pointing fingers. Why didn't you know? Why didn't you know? The president should have known. Congress should have known. The military, you should have known. Why didn't we know? And President Bush, in a Rose Garden address, May 17, 2002, said, Had I known that the enemy was going to use airplanes to kill on that fateful morning, I would have done everything in my power to protect the American people. And you know what? Honestly, I believe him. And I believe him because it's easy to sit here this morning and look back and declare certain dates and say, see, we should have known. It's easy to connect the dots when you're looking backwards. With Bible prophecy, we're looking forward. It would be as though someone back in January of 1993 said, you're going to have three attacks before 9-11, you better be ready. Of course nobody said that. So we're just trying to piece together what's going on. Who are these guys? Why are these terrorists coming after America? And in trying to put all that together, the worst of the worst happened. And we have grown up now, many this generation, in a world of terror. Because we don't know how to connect those dots. And the Lord says, I've given you Bible prophecy. It is actionable intelligence that you may know what is coming and declare it. So that you may have... Illumination. And not illumination so we can sit around and go, we are just an illuminated people, aren't we? (laughs) Dude, we have great study groups. We talk about prophecy all the time. We know what's up. The world out there, you know, whatever. But we are illuminated. You know, that's absolute foolishness. It is, and note this in the verse, it is illumination for salvation. And it's so obviously clear. He says, those with insight will shine brightly like the expanse of the like the brightness of the expanse of the heaven and he says and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars that's the point of illumination that's the point of bible prophecy that we know these things so we can declare to a lost world who Jesus is and the gospel is for the sinner me saved by the grace of god we have bible prophecy to say Prophecy to say, this is what is coming. This is the sequence of events. These are the things that are signs that is very near, and you need to open your mouths and shine brightly like the stars in the heavens, reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ. I'll give you a real easy way to douse that illumination, you know, should you want to. Very simple grumble and dispute. If you will spend your time grumbling and disputing, you will not illuminate the lost. And I have been in and served in a number of churches that spend more time grumbling and disputing than they do sharing the gospel. Not here. You know why we don't have carpet in the new uh, sanctuary? 
so that we don't have time to dispute and grumble over someone spilling something on the carpet. Just take it out. Spill all you want. I'm looking forward to that. We could have a food fight in the sanctuary, no problem. Although the word disfellowship does come to mind if that happens. No, we make such... Uh, there's so many things that we could grumble about. Well, the pastor really offended me this morning. So what? Go, go home and stop being offended. Go tell someone about Jesus. Pastor's a dork anyway. You know? Well, but, but he said this, she said that. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Dispute, dispute, dispute. And pretty soon we are so internally focused that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and we don't even notice. That is how you darken illumination. Paul said, do all things, Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Listen, the darker it gets, the brighter the light of Jesus. And so as people wander in the darkness, you live as a light of Jesus, they see you and they want to follow because you're a way out. Illumination. For salvation. We have pre-tribulation intelligence. We know what's coming. We know what's the lead up. And the clear message is that people without Jesus are going to either head into tribulation or worse, hell. We know this. What are we going to do with the intel? Verse 4. We are just cruising. Verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Wait wait a minute. You just said illumination. Tell, share, get the word out. And then the angel tells Daniel, seal it up. Shh. Conceal this. Don't tell anyone. Here's the point. The whole idea here is that this was for a later time. That the understanding that would come with this vision, chapters 10, 11, and 12 all together, the understanding would only be seen over time. It would take time for 135 prophecies to be completely and literally fulfilled as they were from Daniel all the way up to the first century. It would take time for some of these things to start to unravel and for us to see more clearly. Two words here, the word conceal and the word seal up. Very similar words in the Hebrew. Conceal is satam. And satam means to shut up or to keep close. Keep it close. Close to the vest, if you will. The word seal up is katam. So satam and katam. Katam means to affix a seal or to secure something. Put together, the whole idea is setting something aside for safekeeping. We have this this prophecy, this truth. Daniel, I want you to seal it up, protect it, make sure it's secure, and set it aside, keep it safe. You know, for you Lord of the Rings fans, is it secret? Is it safe? Gandalf comes back, is the ring secret? Have you kept it? That's the idea here. Keeping this safe until the right time, until the end. There are some things I cannot tell my kids. I just can't. It's not that I don't want to. It's just that I've got a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, and there are certain things I try to explain to them, and they go, Can we play now? You know? Moms and dads, you ever had your, your young one, maybe three, four, five years old, come up to you and go, Where do babies come from? And you're like, Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, and you get out the biology book, and you start to explain things, and they just go, Ooh, can I play? They don't want to know. They can't comprehend the belly thing. 
Babies come from mommy's tummies, but can they like eat a hot dog if it's in there? Is that what happens? They don't get it. They don't care. They don't know. They don't have the experience to understand it. My my two middle kids, I've got the whole gamut, so I can speak to these things. My young ones, things I can't explain because they just won't understand. My teenagers don't listen to me anyway. And my older kids, my two older ones, there are things I can discuss with them, but you know what? Honestly, they still don't have the life experience to know where I'm coming from on certain things. And my daughter Hannah, she's getting married in June. I have some great advice for her wedding. I don't think she wants to hear it. (laughs) So I'm like, you do it your way. You know, we had a whole thing where we were sitting down talking about the budget for her wedding. And we were trying to figure out as parents, how do we do this? You know, is it, do we give, you know, is it three cows? I mean, how how does this work? (laughs) I don't know. And uh, finally, I just decided, Hannah, we're going to give you a lump sum. You and Josiah decide how you're going to spend it. Because honestly, I can do without the stress. <laughs> she's not going to. She wants to do it her way. And, and God bless her. She's going to do a lot of things right. She's going to do some things wrong that I could have helped her with, but she doesn't have the life experience yet to see what I see. So it's just not the right time yet. You know, when Hannah turns forty, we're going to sit down and have a conversation. <laughs> You remember when I was right and you were so wrong? Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that. Make sure we all understand that. Daniel is told to take this prophecy and set it aside for safekeeping until. Until when? Two keys. Many, he says, will go back and forth. That's key number one. And key number two, knowledge will increase. Many will go back and forth. That implies global travel. Travel beyond what people could do in Daniel's day. It's going to be the ability to travel will be amazing, massive, hard to believe. Sir Isaac Newton, himself a great believer in Jesus Christ, Sir Isaac Newton referred to this prophecy and said, If this is to be, then man must eventually travel at more than 50 miles an hour. Of course, then the French atheist Voltaire replied, Oh, the doddering fool! Every scientist and thinker knows that if a man were to travel over 40 miles an hour, his heart would stop. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) And of course, in 1984, the great philosopher Sammy Hagar confirmed Newton's hypothesis, saying, I can't drive 55. (laughs) can't do it. Thank you for laughing. First hour just went... Well, you guys remember Sammy Hagar? No 80s rockers in here, I guess? Okay. Many will go back and forth. He also says knowledge will increase. And the implication here is an information explosion. Now think about this. If you compare the amount of sheer information available to mankind to inches, and I think the same guy who did the belt thing also came up with this one. But from the beginning of time to 1948, comparable information to all mankind would be about an inch. From from 1848, sorry, from the beginning of time to 1848, one inch. From 1848 to 1948, three more inches would add on to it. Okay, so three times as much knowledge now is dispersed on planet Earth as it happened all the way up to 1848. From 1948 to 1988, the difference would be 7,860 inches. That's how much information... And guess what? 1988? That was all pre-internet, gang. We are living in the time of massive information explosion. Knowledge has increased incredibly. 
Are we smarter? No. But knowledge has increased. Verse 5, continuing on. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river, the other on the other bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Number four in our listing here, the shattered nation. The shattered nation. Now first, before we get to that, who's the man dressed in linen? I'm hearing some Jesus... Perhaps, maybe it's G. I think it is. I do know for certain that this is the same one we saw in the opening of the vision, Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. The description of which matches John's description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. I think this is Jesus. And I think it's interesting too as we look at it, it even looks like Jesus. What do you mean? Well, the man dressed in linen is walking on the water. Interesting. He's also the one who is stretching out his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, which is exactly the way Jesus would look on the cross. So I think this is Jesus, and he has appeared there again, and Daniel sees him, the two angels. One of the angels asks him, what's the timing of all this? What's it going to be? He says a time, times, and half a time. There, yeah. Three and a half. Three and a half years. A time, times, and half a time. A time being a year, times being two of those times, and then a half a time. Three and a half years. Or the Bible says 42 months. Or the Bible says 1260 days. Revelation 11 verse 2, 12 verse 6, 13 verse 5. We see it in Daniel. The time, times, and half a time. Why does God do this? He does it so that nobody could possibly miss what He's saying. Okay? For those of you who like 42 months, how long? I don't know what 42 months is. Okay, it's 1,260 days. Oh, well, thank you. For those of you who don't get the days, it's just too many. Then, then let's forget that. Three and a half years. Can you handle three and a half years? Yeah, I got that. Thank you, Lord. Good. It's so that everybody can understand. He makes it absolutely clear. He comes at it from every angle. You know, kind of like the Gospels. The four Gospels come at Jesus from four different angles, four different witnesses testifying to what they have seen and heard to understand Jesus, to give Him to us in three dimensions, or four dimensions, that we might understand better. So same thing here, time, times, half a time, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. It's all that picture of what Jesus confirms now as the last three and a half years of that seven year tribulation, or the great tribulation. And it is that time that brings about the final shattering of the nation of Israel. I've had some people ask me, Rick, do you think Israel is going to survive? The Bible indicates about roughly a third of the Jews will survive. Will the nation survive? No. The nation will be shattered. It will be shattered one final time before Jesus establishes the glorious millennial kingdom. And so the prophecy of Daniel concludes with all of this, with Daniel asking, Sir, how is all of this going to work out? Verse 8. Verse 8. As for me, I heard, but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up 
until the end time. I, I like that answer. It's a, it's a nice way of saying none of your beeswax. <laughs> when are these going to be fulfilled? I don't get it, Lord. And he says, this doesn't have to do with you. It's not for now. This is for a time later. So just go your way, Daniel. It's cool. You just write down what I tell you to write down. You don't have to understand. I think of another scene very similar to this where Jesus has been talking to Peter. It's after the resurrection, John chapter 21. He's hanging out with Peter and the boys. He's on the beach. They're having breakfast together. And he begins to describe to Peter, he says, you know, when you were younger, you dressed yourself how you wanted to and you went where you wanted to go. When you're older, someone else will dress you and they will take you somewhere you do not want to go. And by this, he indicated Peter's martyrdom. He's hinting to Peter, you're going to be killed for your faith. You're going to be taken to your death for this. Well, Peter, I don't know if he's totally picking up on it or not, but it says, John 21, verse 20, Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John. And so, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Well, Lord, what about him? (laughs) I love Peter. Rick, you may go into a death of martyrdom. Okay, what about less? I'm going to go. I want to know what's... I'm serious, Lord. Don't you tell me about me. I want to know about Him. He's doing more than I am. He's more faithful. You know. What about Him, Peter says. And I love Jesus' reply. If I want Him to remain until I come, what is that to you? He says, you follow me. Therefore, this saying, John writes this, went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Rumors just start up, you know. Yeah, Jesus said he wouldn't die. That's not what Jesus said. In fact, John clarifies, Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, by the way, John did remain until Jesus came. That is in the Revelation. John saw, had the vision of Jesus' second coming. He lived longer than any of the other apostles, but John died. It's interesting that Jesus responds, what is that to you, Peter? And then he says this, and it's key for us today. You follow me. You just follow me. It's a good word. Don't worry about what other believers are doing. You just follow Jesus. Did you guys hear about, by the way, pastor at the church down in Oak Harbor. Unbelievable what this guy is teaching. No, no, no. You just follow Jesus, Rick. You don't worry about what another believer's doing. You don't worry about what another church is doing over here. You just follow Jesus. But yeah, but, but Rick Warren now is doing a big healthy lifestyle thing. Did you see that? There are those in the church who love Rick Warren and those in the church who hate Rick Warren. You know, he's obviously kind of a lightning rod. It doesn't matter what Rick Warren is doing. You follow Jesus. I hope you don't follow Rick Warren. Or Rick Crawford. That would be really a mess. You follow Jesus. The prophecy is for Daniel's people at the end, not for Daniel right then. He is to write it down and seal it up. Of course, that was then. And this is now. And from the tribulation to resurrections to the illumination to the shattered nation, we know what's coming. We have the intel. We know what this is all about. And ignorance is no longer a viable excuse for not sharing the gospel of Jesus in our day. Verse 10. 
Verse 10. Many will be purged, she says, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. Get that, it's interesting. God explains why wicked people have it good, and good people get messed up. He says if you're good, if your heart is bent on righteousness, if you desire to be holy, you're going to be purged. You're going to be purified. You're going to be refined. Praise the Lord, but refinement takes heat. And purification takes pain. And purging means taking out of my life a lot of times things that I don't really want taken out because I kind of like them. And the Bible tells us all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 That's what happens to the righteous. Well, what about the wicked? They're just going to keep being wicked. It's very simple. And they may seem to get away with it. And their lifestyle may be blessed. Look at Hollywood. <laughs> they may seem to get everything. You're like, yeah, but they're not faithful. I mean, look. I'm not even going to mention Miley because I'm not going to go down Jake's road. <laughs> That's two. <laughs> I mean, look at these people out there. And they're just getting more money. And they're out there doing terrible things and they're still just making all kinds of bucks. That's not fair. The wicked will continue to act wickedly. The righteous are going to many times look like they're kind of going through some tough times. Because you want to be like Jesus, it takes a changing. Praise God that He disciplines us. Praise God that He allows pain and hardship and difficulty in our lives because it pushes us to faith. And it leads us to trust Him more. And I've heard more times than not. In fact, I've never heard the opposite of this. Christians who are going through hard times, what I've heard 100% of the time is, this has put me in touch with God like nothing else. What a blessing in the hardship. That's what happens to the righteous. The wicked, they just keep acting wickedly. And by the way, don't worry about them either. You just follow Jesus. You don't worry about what the other believers are doing. You don't worry about what the wicked world is doing. Man, just follow Jesus. Revelation 22.11 Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Verse 11. From that time... And he's answering the question. From that time... the that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation, which we've already talked about. You have to go back if you want to know what that is. The abomination of desolation is set up. There will be 1,290 days. Okay, real quickly. How long is 1,290 days? Three and a half years? Wrong. (laughs) Trick question. 1,260 days is three and a half years. This is 1,290 days. He just added 30 days. What? What? Oh man, I just got the 42 months, time times and half a time, you know, three and a half years, 1260 days, I got it down, and now he's throwing in an extra 30 days. What's the deal with this? Well, let's see if the next verse helps. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1335 days! What's that? That's 45 more! Now I'm up to 75 days beyond the tribulation, and I'm really confused. What are you talking about, Lord? Now listen closely. I don't know. (laughs) Not a clue. No, there are some possible clues here, but all we know is he's talking about a 75-day period. You know, blessed is the one who hangs on. 
until the 1335 days, 75 days after the tribulation ends, after the, the end of Armageddon, after Jesus returns, 75 days. Something's got to take place there before the kingdom gets off and running. What is that? Well, the nations have to be judged, right? Matthew 25, Jesus describes a judgment called the judgment of nations. It is not a judgment of people. It's not individual. It is national. Matthew chapter 25, in verse 40, he's talking about this. He gives the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is not about judgment day. It's about national judgment day. And the sheep are those nations who are blessed, and the goats are those nations who are not blessed. And the Bible is very clear that it is about the nations. And in that discussion, Jesus says, Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So the criteria of national judgment at that time is how a nation treated Israel. As much as you've done it to one of these brothers of mine, you've done it to me. If you fed them, if you visited them in prison, if you cared for them, if you met their needs, if you looked after them, then you are among the sheep to my right and you will enter into the kingdom, you nations. And if you disregarded them, if you ignored them, if you were opposed to them, goats. And you will not enter the kingdom. And that's going to be the dividing line between which nations exist in the millennial kingdom and which nations do not. Matthew 25, check it out. That's got to happen. So within those 75 days, I would submit that the judgment of nations takes place somewhere in there. We clean up that problem. Something else has to happen before the millennial kingdom begins. And that is the scattered, shattered people of Israel must be regathered from all over the world. They're going to come back into the land, and there in the land they're going to be judged. Quickly, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33. I'll just read it to you. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. And I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod. I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. And I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So there's going to be a regathering of the shattered people of Israel brought back in, those who are scattered around the world, as well as those who are protected, and they will meet the Lord and there will be judgment then. So during that 75 days, judgment of nations, gathering and judgment of Israel, one more possibility of something taking place in that time. Remember the fantastic millennial temple complex that we studied at the end of Ezekiel? That thing's got to be built. And so the millennial temple and the structure and the complex will be rebuilt at that time. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch. He will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne. The council of peace will be between the two offices. There is your prince of peace. There is our peace on earth. And it is promised to come. 
And I would love to get the builders on that Millennial Temple to work over on Troxel Road. Because we'd be done just like that. Okay. Verse 13. Final verse of the book of Daniel. As for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Daniel, you've got an inheritance, buddy. An inheritance waiting for you. You're going to die, but you are going to be raised up to life. And in that resurrection, you will receive your inheritance. Guess what? We have an inheritance waiting for us too. An inheritance in Jesus. And you know now, so don't seal it up. Revelation 22 verse 10 says, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near.